Stay with us after today's message for our new feature for 2010. Pastor Clay answers your questions on Cross Cultures Q&A. If you want to get to know God, get to know God's Word. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Because the purpose of God's Word is not simply to record words that we can all read and say, well, isn't that nice? It's designed to change our lives. 2010. It's not only the beginning of a new year, it's a whole new decade. As we embark on the second decade of the 21st century, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. Terrorist attacks, natural disasters, economic chaos makes you wonder where all of this is going. We need to know that our God is in control, that our God has a plan, and that in the end, we win. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today, we begin a brand new series entitled The Revelation. We're pretty excited around here about this new study, as Pastor Clay is going to take us on a systematic journey through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has been around for 2,000 years, and yet it seems to remain a mystery to so many people. Often, students of the Bible have tended to stay away from this book of prophecy because of its symbolism and varied interpretations. But did you know it's the only book in the Bible that comes with a specific promise of blessing to those who read and act on it? Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Today's message is an introduction to the book of Revelation that will help lay the groundwork for what we pray will be a profitable time of study for all of us. We're glad you've joined us, and we hope you'll be with us throughout this series as we discover the encouraging truths of the Revelation. Today, uh, we embark on this journey called the Revelation. Uh, It is a systematic walk through the book of Revelation. It will take a good bit of time to do. Uh, I've said that it will take all of 2010. That's my guesstimation uh, as I begin to lay out chapters and verses and that sort of thing. Uh, It's possible that it could be shorter than that. It's possible that it could be longer than that. But but that's okay, I think. (laughs) I think. Today is a little different. Um, Today, I I felt like it was important to kind of lay some groundwork for this study. So today, in a sense, is not going to be, you know, a sermon quote-unquote. I want to talk to you about God's Word and about this study, but you're going to discover that this is kind of, I'm kind of laying out the groundwork today for how we're going to proceed in this study and really why we're proceeding with this study. Because some people, the idea of doing a what could possibly be a year-long study seems, you know, a bit, I've even had someone say that to me, wow, are you afraid that maybe some people will you know, get tired of it or get bored with it or, you know, and, and just kind of move on and, and whatever else because they, you know, they just can't hang with that study for, for that long. And, and I guess there is that potential uh, whenever you are going to walk all the way through one particular book of the Bible, especially one that's, you know, a little longer. But uh, I think that the benefits of walking through a book of the Bible 
outweigh whatever negatives there might be. I don't, I don't really think there are, but I do understand that, that it's possible that somebody say, oh, I just, I just can't, I can't imagine being in the same book for an entire year. Well, I, th- I think you're going to enjoy this. Uh, that's, that's no reflection on me. I'm not saying because of me, but I, I just think that this is going to be very profitable for us today. And, and so, and having said that, uh, let me just, let me give you some reasons. As I, as I was thinking about this and I was praying through it, and uh, let me just give you some reasons why I think that we should do a book study. Why do a book study? Have y'all wondered that? Why do a book study? I want to give you some reasons that, that for me, matter. For one thing, that's my job. It's my job to deliver to you the Word of God in its context so that you can have a fuller understanding. Um, in, in God's Word, we find this passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, uh, a passage of Scripture that, uh, uh, that certainly most preachers are, are familiar with. It says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead. Paul's saying, he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, don't forget it. This is not about pleasing me. Paul's Timothy was his son in the faith, and he's writing to him. He says, this is not about pleasing me. Remember, there's one you'll stand before someday and give an account for how you've done as a pastor, which Timothy was. I urge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will solemnly judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Here's what he charged him with. Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not, in other words, whether it's received well or not received well, whether you might receive criticism or not receive criticism, whether there might even be persecution or not persecution, whether, the, whether the, that it's received, no matter what, whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct rebuke and encourage. That's, that's a pastor's and under-shepherd's role is to patiently, sometimes we get a little impatient, all right, I confess that to you, but to patiently correct rebuke and encourage. And you do that, of course, through the Word of God. Encourage your people with good teaching. And here's why. Paul says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. I am of the belief that we are very much in a time like that in our society, in our culture. And, I, and I'm referring to the church society, the church culture. Uh, unchurched people, people outside these walls or the, and don't attend a church anywhere, they, they don't really don't care one way or the other. But I have watched, even in, in my ministry experience through the years, I have watched this, this growing trend towards moving away from the Word of God and moving more towards psychobabble or, or what's going to make me feel better or seven ways to have joy in your life or five ways to, to get along with your wife or, or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that those aren't important subjects. I'm just saying there's, there, I've, I've watched this movement away from the Word of God, which I believe ultimately addresses every area of our life that needs to be addressed. And I've watched this growth of, of what's sometimes referred to as the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. That, that I'm going to go sit and listen to that guy because he always has good things to say and he always wants to say that, that you know, 
all, that all this good thing's going to come to me if I just have enough faith and all that kind of thing. I've watched that grow, and it's, it's a good-sounding message. And so you can see why people would be, would be drawn to that. I, I, I've watched that occur uh, Paul tells us you gotta, you got to preach the word. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's saying goodbye to the elders, to the pastors in Ephesus. And he's never going to see them again. And he, and he gives them, he, he reminds them of what he's done, and he gives them a charge as pastors. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of everyone's blood. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan, or your translation may have the whole counsel. Of God, not just the good parts, not just the parts where everybody wants to hear, but the whole plan of God. And then he says, be on guard. He's saying this to the pastor. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. That's our job. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church doesn't belong to me, never did, never has, never will belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has charged me with, with teaching you his word. That's my job. So y'all wouldn't want me to get in trouble for not doing my job, right? Second reason I, th- I think a, a book study is important right now is not only my job, but I also believe that it's for your benefit. I really believe that you're going to benefit from this study. Now, certainly part of that benefit is going to be informational. You're going to learn a lot, or at least I certainly hope that you do. If you're here uh, week in, week out, or most of the weeks that you can be here, if you, if you open God's Word or you pay attention on the screen, if you take notes, uh, if you look at, the, at these passages of Scripture that we'll be talking about, if you go back and look at them through the week, uh, there's going to be information. You're going to gain information. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Second Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Watch this. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now that applies in its context to, to the preachers, again, those proclaiming the word of God. But it would also apply to all of us to have the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. In other words, to know why God's word says something, when it says something, what it means when it says it, and how do I, how do I make sense out of this for my life? Oh, it's going to be informational. First um, Peter chapter 3, maybe you've read this before, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give every person an answer to the question that they ask you. Why do you believe what you believe? You believe in that God stuff? You believe Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, you really believe that stuff? Why do you believe that stuff? It is astounding to me the number of Christians that can't answer the most basic of questions like that. Well, I don't know. I just just believe it. The Bible says so. Yeah, where? Can I tell you this? It's one of the things that drives non-believers absolutely crazy. Particularly those that are, that are atheistic, have a bent towards atheism. It drives them absolutely crazy that Christians say they believe this stuff, but they don't know, seem to know what it really says. They don't really... It's informational. And, and, and my prayer is that there's going to be a great bit of information that you'll gain from this. But it's also my prayer that not only will it be informational, but that it will also be inspirational. You see... To just feed you a bunch of information is, is not enough. I want to see God's word change our lives. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right of Hebrews, is, what he's saying is the word of God has the power to cut out of your life the things that shouldn't be in there. And the word of God has the ability to sow into your life the things that should be there. It's found in the word of God. In other words, to, for your life to come to this place of change. Can I ask you a question? Don't you get tired of just reading about these Bible stories and hearing about this, this greater life and this, and this joy that I'm supposed to have and this purpose and this satisfaction and this meaning and this plan and all this stuff, and yet my life seems totally out of control. I don't seem to be experiencing any of the things that this guy stands up here and tells me I'm supposed to have and that his word says I'm supposed to have. Don't you long to really have it, to be inspired by God's word to be changed. Uh, also, another familiar passage of Scripture, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet, a light for my path. It, it changes us. It directs us. It, it, it makes us who God has designed us to be. It's found within the pages of God's word. It's for your benefit. It really is that we're about to embark on this journey. It's... Uh, It's my job, and it's for your benefit. But third, and quite honestly, most importantly, it's for God's glory that we're going to do this. It is for God's glory. I can think of nothing that brings greater glory to God than for God's people to be opening the pages of his word and and not just reading but studying it and and saying, okay, what is this, and how does this correlate to this, and what is it to be studying God's word and and to be drawing near unto him, for God's name to be made famous, to be made more known in others' lives and our, in our own lives. Can I tell you this? If you want to get to know God, get to know God's Word. That's really where it's found. Because I, I, I talk with, with people. I, I, I know of your hurts and, and, and your aches and, and you're often feeling distant from God. And, and what happens is the more distant we feel from Him, we feel from him, the less motivated we are to go to him. You know, it, and it's, it's, it's wild. It's like, there's the cure, but I don't want to do that because I don't feel close to God. So I'm going farther and farther. And, and I was talking to somebody the other day that was struggling spiritually. And, and I said, when was the last time you're, you were really in God's word? Months, maybe years. If you want to know God, get to know God's word. That brings glory to God. For his children to draw near unto him. So it is my job. I don't shrink back from that. I don't apologize for it. It is for your benefit. I believe that we will benefit from this study. And ultimately it is for God's glory. So that's why we're doing a book study. Any objections? (laughs) All right. Let's, let's get into it. Like I said, we're kind of laying the groundwork uh, today for it. And so I I, I want to, uh, to begin to do that. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the title. Um, this is the way it looks in the Greek. I went ahead and translated it into English, into the English equivalent on your outline if you happen to like to do that. But I, I want, to, want you to understand the title. It's the Apocalypsis Iesu Christu. Apocalypse of Jesus Christ would be the translation. And like I said, I, I transliterated it into English for you. Um, but... What may strike you as you see this is this word apocalypse. Because in our culture today, when most people hear the word apocalypse, what do you think of? The end, 
destruction, war, uh, turmoil. And that term is used, used in Hollywood. It's used a lot. It's, a, it's the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse. Well, it's come to get that meaning in our culture because of its association with the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation talks about the end, talks about the turmoil, talks about the tribulation period, all that stuff that we'll, we'll talk about uh, later. But uh, it, it discusses all, it brings all those things up. And so people have come to associate the word apocalypse with the end and with destruction and with war. But the word apocalypsis actually simply means to unveil, to uncover, to reveal. Hence, the revelation the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's the title. Some of your Bibles may even have the revelation of John. Does anybody have a, a, a book, the translation actually says the revelation of John? That was very common, at least for a number of years, the revelation of John. Simply identifying the, the human author as John. We'll talk about him in just a moment. But but the, the text itself literally starts with, with those words that you saw on the screen a minute ago. Apocalypsis Iesu Christu. Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is his revelation. His unveiling to you and to me. He wants us to know. Let's talk about the author. John, the apostle. He's simply identified as John, I believe, five, four or five times. He actually gives his name. Uh, church history has held that this is John the Apostle, John one of the twelve, John who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, John one of the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. That John, who, who in, the, in the Gospel of John identifies himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. There have been some other names put forward or some other speculation about who this John might be. Some have, have had a problem with identifying the Apostle John. One of the op, uh, objections has been the, the uh, age of it. We'll talk about that in just a minute. That John w- certainly would have been a very old man by the time, if he was still alive, he would have been a very old man by the time he wrote this. Well, I don't, I don't really have a problem with that. We're not talking, I mean, it, would, it was a realistic number uh, even in, in those days. But the church has, uh, early church fathers... Tertullian, Eusebius, all, all early church fathers had no problem with the belief that John the Apostle was the author of this book. Let's talk about the date it was written. On or right about A.D. 95. Just prior to the end of the first century, and by the first century we mean the first century after Christ has, has come to earth, he's lived his life, Christ died on the cross somewhere around 33, 34 A.D. So you can, you can do the math. We're, we're talking about roughly 60 years or so since then. So if John, and most people believe John was a very young man at the time that he was one of Jesus' apostles, disciples, um, he would have certainly been up in his 80s uh, by this point in his life. And we'll talk next week about where he is at the time of his writing. But A.D. 95. Let me tell you why that's kind of important to understand as we, as we dive into this book. Up to this point, the church, remember, it's still kind of fledgling. It's still kind of getting on. Jesus has gone back to heaven. He's, he's given the great commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel, uh, share the message of Jesus. Everywhere you go, Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth, as it says in Acts 1 8. He's given this, the great commission, Matthew 28. He's gone back to heaven, and the church has been birthed. It started in Jerusalem, and then it began to expand from there. It began to, to go out. And now we're talking. Again, like I said, 50, 60, 65 years, somewhere in that area, uh, after Christ has gone back to heaven. So it's been growing rapidly, but it's still relatively young, less than, certainly less than 100 years. 
initially, and you find this in the early chapters of the book of Acts, initially the church faced opposition from the Jews, right? Those that, that put Christ to death, they, they certainly didn't want this rumor being spread that he had actually risen from the grave. And so uh, they, they faced opposition from, from Jews. But up until this point, there's not been a lot of persecution from the Roman Empire. Remember, this time Rome rules the known world. Rome hasn't, hasn't given much thought to Christianity. First off, it was a rather uh, small movement still at that point as far as Rome was concerned. And, and Rome didn't really have a problem with, with, with Christianity, with your religion. That's fine. Every, every nation they had conquered had their belief systems. Every nation that they had conquered had their gods. And, and Rome kind of was kind of like, you know, be and let be. You know, if you want to worship your gods, your religion, if it's multiple gods, whatever it is, we don't really have a problem. Rome didn't really care about Christianity. Here's what they cared about. Rome had this thing called emperor worship. And the way that a good Roman acknowledged that he was a good Roman was he acknowledged that the emperor, the Caesar, was a god. In, in essence, they, they bent their knee to Caesar, and they said, Caesar is, is God. Rome says, hey, worship whoever you want, call whoever you want a God, just make sure you call emperor God too. Well, Houston, we have a problem if you're a follower of Jesus. A, a follower of Jesus can't do that, right? Now, other, other gods, other belief systems can. They don't have a problem. I've talked with people in different parts of the world that, you know, you begin to talk to them about Jesus, and they oh, yeah, I'll take Jesus. They got no problem. They just, they'll just hook him up with all their other gods too. It's called syncretism. This, this adapting and bringing other gods into other religions. I don't have a problem with that. They, that's how they are. Rome, we don't have a problem with it. Just bow and acknowledge Caesar as God. Well, can't do that if you're a follower of Jesus. Because one of the core foundational beliefs in our, in our belief system is that there is one God. One true God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is only one God, and there is none like him. It was foundational to, to the Jewish belief, and it was foundational to the Christian belief. And so the Christians said, we, we will not. We cannot bow our knee. So what this means is that the church was about to be severely persecuted for this belief. And you've read the stories, the accounts of Christians being fed to the lions and all of those things that are true. And this is why they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as God. They wouldn't, they wouldn't participate in emperor worship. So the church, John writes this letter at a time when the church is going, man, they're, they're going to need encouragement. They're going to need strengthening. They're going to need to know that their God is still on the throne. They're going to need to know that their God actually has a plan. And they're going to need to know that in the end, no matter what they go through, they're going to need to know that we win. Right? And the great thing about it was that, that message is still true on through the ages. No matter how long it, it, it takes before we see the ultimate culmination and fulfillment of it, is that we need to know that our God is in control, that our God has a plan, and that in the end, we win. So that's why the timing comes out around AD 95. God is in the midst of, of encouraging his, his people as to what's going to happen. All right, um, let's go on. Let me, let me give you, you, most of you won't give a hoot about this, but humor me. Four ways of approaching the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Uh, you will from time to time throughout the study hear me say that some believe this or some believe this. It is a 
a book that has wide interpretation by a lot of people. And, uh, well, let's just leave it at that. Four ways of approaching the interpretation of the book of Revelation. The first one is what's referred to as the non-literal or the allegorical approach to interpreting. It is symbolic. Uh, it is this this uh, approach was kind of birthed out of the Alexandrian school of theology, and they tended to allegorize everything. In other words, it's, it's all symbolic. Now, listen to me. There, there is symbolism in the book of Revelation, and, and we'll see that, and we'll get to that. But... But the Alexandrian school said, oh, the whole book is it's just, it's just symbolic of, of difficulties in life. and of, In other words, it was not literal. What you're reading is not actual events that are going to occur. It's, it's just kind of spiritualizing it, if you will. That's the first approach and uh, is still popular in some circles today. The second approach is what's called the preterist approach. The preterist approach basically is a record of of the conflicts of the early church between, between the early church and Judaism and paganism. In other words, the preterists say all, everything that you read in the book of Revelation, all that already took place. It took place within the first hundred years or so, first couple hundred years maybe of the church, and they went through these struggles and, and all this kind of stuff, but that, that's all past. That's, that's already taken place. That's the preterist approach, okay? Third approach it's called the historical approach. And there are some similarities between the preterist and the historical approach. But the historical approach basically is a presentation of the total of church history. The historical approach says, hey, um, this, this has been taking place and this is taking place. And the book of Revelation is a record of everything that's taking place in the life of the church. And that as we get to chapters 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, what we find is that the church eventually, eventually conquers uh, the world, the church eventually makes everything fine and good. We go out and, 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 and the church changes the world is basically, that's the historical approach. The church changes the world. The, what's sometimes referred to as the amillennial view kind of was birthed out of the historical approach. So in other words, it's, you're really, it's, just, it's just a history of the life of the church. The fourth view, the fourth approach, and the one that your pastor unashamedly um, uh, lines up with is the futuristic approach. And that is a, that these are literal events that are to be fulfilled in the future. Particularly, and, and you'll see this, particularly from chapter 4 on. And you'll understand as we get into it. But, but that the Re- book of Revelation is talking about literal, actual events. And that they will, and are yet to take place in the future. Okay? Aren't you glad you asked about the four approaches? What are the four approaches? Thank you. (laughs) The the non-literal or allegorical, the preterist, the historical, and the futuristic. I'm going with the futuristic. That's where the direction of this study will be. I will from time to time mention some others, but there it is. All right. Now, having given you those four approaches, now let me give you quickly a basic outline of the book of Revelation. And let me encourage you, even if you're not a note taker, especially this first page that I'm giving you this week, keep that. Put some hole, punch some holes in it. We didn't punch the holes for you this time, uh, but punch the holes. Get your little notebook and put them in there. You may want to just save the whole record and, and, uh, as a study for the book of Revelation. But let me give you an outline of the book of Revelation. And I uh, confess to you that most of this comes straight from Warren Wiersbe. Uh, it's a pretty easy outline. Almost anybody would see it as they read through it, but, but uh, he had it there, and I'm just borrowing from him. Outline of the book of Revelation, um, part one, the things which you have seen. 
the things which you have seen. Chapter 1 is, is all that whole, of the three sections of, the, of this outline as it breaks down, only one chapter is used. It is uh, John's vision of the exalted Christ. It's, it's, it's John sees Christ uh, in his exalted state, and there's a description that we're going to read about, and it's a magnificent description of Jesus. And quite honestly, it's very different from the Jesus that we see uh, in the Gospels uh, pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection. Um, so it's the things which you have seen, chapter 1. Second part of the outline is the things which are, and that's in chapters 2 and 3. And that encompasses John's letters to the seven churches these were seven literal churches in Asia Minor. We'll get to that uh, here in the next couple of weeks as well. But it's the things which are. This is what was happening to the church. And John addresses that in the opening initial parts of the book of Revelation. And then the third part, the, which takes up the greatest amount of the book of Revelation, the things which shall be chapters 4 through 22. Okay? The things which... which he has seen the things which are and the things which shall be, chapters 4 through 22. Let me break down chapters 4 through 22 very quickly for you. It looks like this. Chapters 4 and 5 cover the throne in heaven. Um, Nicole even read some this morning from, from chapter 5 of Revelation. You heard this glorious picture of the risen Christ and the throne room in heaven and, and all that it's going to be. The throne in heaven, chapters 4 and 5. Then you move into the tribulation on earth in chapters 6 through 19. So obviously the largest section of the book of Revelation is taken up with what? The tribulation. Chapters 6 through 19 cover the tribulation. Let me break that down for you a little bit. Uh, you have the first half in chapters 6 through 9, the middle part of the tribulation, and I'll, I'll explain what we're talking about by tribulation when we get there, chapters 10 through 14, and the last half of the tribulation, chapters 15 through 19. All of that is uh, that particular section, the tribulation on earth, chapters 6 through 19. And then uh, the third part, the kingdom of Christ in chapter 20, that millennial reign, that glorious return, the setting up of his kingdom, all that sort of thing in chapter 20. And then finally, the new heavens and the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. We win. That's when you get to the we win part, chapters really 20, 21, and 22. So that is uh, the breakdown of that, uh, that part of the particular uh, outline to the book of Revelation. Um, any questions on that? <laughs> I'm sure there will be plenty of them. I'm being sort of facetious when I say it. Let me see if there's anything else I want to bring out. Got you the outline. Okay, now, real quickly, before we go this morning, I want to begin to get into the book. We were actually going to do that today. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through three. Let me read it to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, that's us, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Everything that he saw, he's testifying to that. Verse 3, blessed is he 
who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. John starts out by letting you know right from the bat that this is a revelation that comes directly from God. In other words, it's not hearsay. It's not John's own idea or John's own hopes or thoughts about how the end. John is saying, I was witness to this. I'm an eyewitness to this. And I'm telling you, this came straight from Jesus Christ. This is his revelation. It is from him. It is about him. And John wants to make sure that you and I understand that. You may notice that he says, to show to his bondservants the things which, and here's the, here it is, must soon take place. Notice that? You ever wondered this? I've heard people say this. Why does John say that these things must soon take place? It's been 2,000 years and it hasn't taken place yet. So that must be wrong. Why would John say the things that must soon take place? Well, sometimes people say, well, God's timing is not our timing. And, that, and that's true. God doesn't run on our clock necessarily. But in this particular instance, what you need to understand is when he says these things which must soon take place, the Greek word is intekai, and it, it, it means quickly or suddenly. So John is not necessarily saying that the things that he is going to write about are about to take place. What he's saying is, is when they begin to take place, that they will happen very quickly, very suddenly. That once it starts, it will move very quickly. And, and if, if you hold to a premillennial view and the idea of a seven-year tribulation period, you do know that it's just bam, 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 bam. It's just one thing after the other after the other. It's just happening. So what John is saying, these things that when they take place, buddy, they're going to take place. It's going to get going. But what I really want you to see before we close this morning, what I really want you to to get a hold of as you walk out of here, I've given you a lot of stuff, I know. But I want you to get a hold of what I consider the the BP squared today, the big picture biblical principle. And it's there in verse 3, and it's simply this, ladies and gentlemen. Read and heed. Read and heed. Blessed is he who reads. By the way, this is one of, as far as I know, seven beatitudes or blessings that are given in the book of Revelation. There's that number seven again. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. There would have been a reader in those days. There weren't that. Everybody didn't have a copy of God's word. There would have been a reader. There would have been a listener. But watch this, the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. If it. I said this earlier, but let me just repeat this as we close. If we go through this entire study and I give you all kinds of information and, and, and we've read every bit of this, every single word, that we've gone all through it. If I've given you all this information, but there's not been a, a transformation, a, a change, a, a further development in your walk with Jesus, then quite honestly, I will have considered 2010 a waste. Because the purpose of God's word is not simply to record words that we can all read and say, well, isn't that nice? It's designed to change our lives. And so John said, by the way, uh, as far as I know, this is the only Bible, uh, the only book in the Bible that comes with a specific direct promise of blessing to those who read it. Only one. Now, does that seem ironic to you that this book, this particular book, the book of Revelation, is probably read less than any other book in the Bible? Except maybe Leviticus. That might be stay away from a lot. But, 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 but why, why is that? Now, don't get me wrong, all of Scripture is a blessing, all of Scripture is profitable, and, and you learn, but, but it's only the book of Revelation that comes with a direct promise of blessing to those who read it and those who heed it. My prayer for all of us, not just you all, for me as well, is that as we walk through this study, is that, is that 
we will be changed more into the image of our, of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. That the things that we, that we read about will actually change our lives. That, that when we read about this great tribulation period or we read about this real place called hell or we read about, about the need for people in relationship with Jesus as we discover how this is going to unfold, that it will burden our hearts in such a way that, that we've got to go tell other people about what's in front of them. My hope is that as we, as we read about this conquering Christ in, in chapter 19 and, and the setting up of his kingdom in, in, in chapter 20 and, and, and 21 and, and 22 and the new heavens, new earth, that it would so inspire us to say, I don't care what life throws at me, this is good stuff what God has for me. Man, and the description is unbelievable. That our lives would be changed. That is the unveiling. That is the revealing that is the revelation. Not that it is simply information that we receive, but that it is information that is inspirational and changes our lives. That's my prayer for all of us through this study. May it be, may God add his blessing to the reading, to the study, and to the heeding of his word. Well, we've barely scratched the surface of this important and timely book of the Bible. But already we can see the benefits of such a study. As we've learned today, there are numerous methods of interpretation for the book of Revelation, but that doesn't mean we can't know the truth. Jesus gave his revelation to John to give to all of us. Already we're seeing that God has a plan, and we need not fear the future when we know the one who controls it. Cross Culture Church has a new home in Raleigh. We invite you to join us for our weekly cross-culture worship with upbeat Christ-centered music and timely encouraging biblical messages celebrating the goodness of our God and what it means to be in a relationship with Him. Cross Culture Church meets Sunday mornings at 1030 in the auditorium at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture, you'll find a community of believers with the desire to be used by God to show that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Today is a brand new year, and we've got a lot of things in store for uh, this year. One of the things is we're kicking off a new series uh, today, but... One of the things we're also doing this year is called Q&A. Q&A is uh, a supposedly five-minute time each week where I will get up here and answer a question that you have, that you have filled out. Now, we don't have the cards yet, but the cards will probably be in this week, and they should look just like the, uh, the screen you see up there. You'll see a card like that. On the back will be a place for you to write out a question. These questions uh, are designed to be practical um, they can be theological, they can be whatever they are. If the Bible addresses it, we want to try and address it. 
Uh, and so each week we'll gather those cards up. I'll look through them and I'll, and I'll take on one of those cards to try and answer questions that you may have. And, uh, you know, whatever it is, you, you don't have to sign it. So whatever question it is, you can just put it on there and uh, hopefully we'll be able to deal with it. My, my commitment to you is if the Bible deals with it, we're going to try and deal with it. Because as I've said before, I think the church has been too silent on some areas that the church probably should have spoken up in. And we'll try and address those as best we can in a five-minute time period. So not a lot of time, but we'll do that. And then I'll probably do some further uh, explanation on my blog, which you can go to. And I'm sure you're all avid readers of my blog, so you can go there and, and read it. So, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> all right. All right, got about the response I thought I'd get out of that. All right, okay, so the, the Q&A for today, are y'all ready for this? We only got one, I really only got, received one question uh, for coming up for this week, which may seem kind of ironic to you since I, I, I think it was just last week I mentioned we don't talk much about money around here, but the question that we got for this week was, should we tithe from the Christmas gifts given to us? I don't know whether any of you ever thought about that, but the person that, that brought me that question had thought about that and, and said, I always want to do the right thing. We want to, want to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing. And so, the, you know, number one, it was the only question I had. <laughs> number two, it's a, good, it's a good question because perhaps people, because really you could say, when I receive cash gifts, you know, does God expect me to give part of that back to him or, or what? Y'all have probably been wondering that, hadn't you? Yeah, see? So there you go. So we're going we're gonna to deal with it. Uh, let, me, let me just go just briefly as I can. Let's start this way. Let's differentiate um, let's, or, or define what we mean when we begin to talk about, about tithes. Uh, the word tithe uh, literally means 10%. It's transliterated from the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is, is, is tithe or tithe, and it, and it means a tenth or, or 10%. Uh, it, was, it was given, of course, in Levitical law, but what I want you to see in a moment, it was, it was actually given before then. But anyway, so when we talk about a tithe, we're talking about this biblical understanding of 10% uh, is what the word means. And then you also find in the Bible this word offerings, uh, you hear, hear tithes and offerings. Offerings simply are gifts separate from our tithes. And, and Scripture laid those out at times. And, and, uh, and we talk about that from time to time. We do things like the Lottie Moon and stuff like that. They're gifts above and beyond uh, God's expectation on our tithes. So, so those are the terms that we're talking about. Let me, uh, let me give you a, a biblical background real quickly if I can. In, uh, in Genesis, it says, And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. This is, this is Melchizedek talking. And then it says, Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. Uh, Abram's family and all stuff had been carried off by these, these bad guys. And, um, and Abram and his team went after him. I'm paraphrasing, but they went after him. Uh, God gave them the power to, to get, take everything back, take their family back, get everything back. And when he came back, uh, Abram runs into Melchizedek, who Scripture reveals as the, the high priest, the Lord God's high priest. Now, he may have been more than that. That's a whole other story. But he, he was, he's identified at least as the high priest of the Lord God. And it says in the text in Genesis 14 that Abram made this decision to give a tenth of his income or a tenth of his, his things that he'd recovered to Melchizedek, who was a representative of the Lord God. I point that out because uh, sometimes people say, well, we're not under Levitical law anymore. And I just want you to understand that God actually, this first occurrence came not per God's request, but per Abram's decision 
to do so. So Genesis 14.20, also uh, the text that most people point to in Leviticus uh, says, One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to Him as holy. That's where the, the law is instituted in Leviticus chapter 27. The implication seems to be that it has to do with with things that, that are wages, if you will, that are earned. Remember, it's a totally different society then as it was today, as it is today. Back then, it was an agrarian society, and you didn't necessarily get paid in, in money, in, in, in coinage necessarily. Uh, you, there was a lot of bartering going on, swapping out. I raised some corn, but I need some wheat, and, or I got this, this grapes are going on, and I'm going to switch. So there's a lot of that going on. So God said, that's why it's, you find in, te- in text it's called tithes, plural, because they might have corn, they might have wheat, they might have... Uh, grapes, so on and so forth. And there was this idea of giving back to God the first fruits as God had, had blessed them. Now, let me give you my understanding in Scripture of, of why the tithe, uh, why we tithe, why I think we should be doing this. Number one, gratitude. Uh, I think that's what you find in Scripture. It's just out of gratitude for what God has done in our lives. And we're just grateful for that. Genesis chapter 28, Jacob says, and this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives to me. Jacob says, I'm just grateful for what God has done. And I want to acknowledge that. And this is a tangible way that I can do that. Again, this is before Levitical law. Uh, you find this principle being, being laid out. And then also um, desire, desire to be a part of God's work. Just because I it's just exciting to, uh, to know that God would take what he gives me as I give it back and he uses it for that. Um, remember this, the person who sows sparingly, Paul writes, is the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not out of regret or out of necessity. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. It's just this desire uh, to do this. I had a guy, I actually had a guy told me one time, he said, well, I can be cheerful given $20. I can't be cheerful given 10% of my income. <laughs> I, was, I didn't say this to him, but I thought, well, which one do you think God wants to change? You're, you know, do you think he wants you to give you less or do you think he wants you to change your, your attitude? Anyway, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Just the desire to be engaged in the work that God is doing. And then the third reason, as I understand it, uh, is just faith. Faith that everything comes from God. To be able to express that is, is in this tangible way. Say, God, you're in control of everything. The, the Israelites had forgotten that, that God was in control. And there's this passage of scripture in Malachi. It says, should people cheat God, yet you've cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did uh, we ever cheat you? You've cheated me out of the tithes and offerings. This is God talking. Do to me, you are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes in the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, if you do says the Lord of, heaven, of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. And I love that ending. He says, try it. Put me to the test. One of the very few places in Scripture where God says, test me on this. The, the Israelites had forgotten. They, they weren't walking by faith anymore. And they said, well, we just don't even need to, need to give that. And God says, no, this is, this is a faith issue. This is a big deal. So as, as best I understand it, gratitude, uh, desire, and faith are the reasons. Now, out of all those passages of Scripture, um, there's one more that I think is kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 2. He says, Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The principle is uh, the, the, the religious leaders were getting on to 
Jesus' people because the work they did supposedly on the Sabbath. And, all that. and Jesus, Jesus was saying, listen, guys, the, 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 the things that I give to you aren't given to you to become this drudgery and this thing that weigh you down. They're actually for your benefit and for your pleasure and for your joy. So don't get caught up in the idea of, of, of you know, crossing every T and dotting every I and thinking, okay, that's what God, as long as I'm doing what God expects of me, it's okay. No, it's the attitude of the heart. That's what all this comes down to. So the principle seems to be that the tithe is giving off, off of what we earn in a wage. Bottom line is, no, I don't think there's any expectation that a person has to give from the gifts that are given to them that they need to give that back to God. Is there, if somebody does, is there anything wrong with that? No. If somebody says, you know, I just want to give part. I've been blessed in this way, so I want to bless somebody else. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's not necessarily a biblical expectation that they do so. And that's Q&A for today. <laughs> Turn in your questions. I know the card's aren't here yet, but you can even write it on a piece of paper. Uh, drop them in the offering box, and we'll deal with each question each week as we, uh, as we just walk through God's Word in a very practical way.